Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the founder of Neurohacker Collective, James Schmachtenberger. After deciding he wanted to exit high school early, James knew one thing. Living up to his own potential wasn't doing schoolwork, but in solving real, tangible issues in the world. His ventures into entrepreneurship led him to being burnt out. But learning about an IV treatment product in Mexico, he gave it a try. He was reinvigorated, realizing the potential wellness products can have for consumers in an overworked, stressed-out world. He found a neurohacker as a robust collaborative effort between top healthcare experts and biohackers alike, with the goal of meaningfully increasing the mental, emotional, and physical capacity of its consumers. Now, Neurohacker is ranked in the top 10% of fastest-growing companies in the country, increasingly diversifying its offering of robust wellness products. Neurohacker, Neurohacker Collective is growing like crazy. So James, my friend, let's get to it. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here today. Wow. So uh, let's go back to the origin of where this company started. Where'd the idea come from and how did this whole thing get, get kicked off for you? Yeah. So the, there's sort of two parts to the origin. There's like the personal inspiration and there's kind of the bigger picture. Um, I think in my bio, you started to touch on the personal side, which was, uh, so I, after I dropped out of college for the third time, um, I <laughs> enrolled in a vocational college that taught alternative medicine and psychology. And I just absolutely fell in love with the work and it felt like what I wanted to be doing in the world. Um, so I you know, just took every class I could as quickly as possible. And uh, right around the time that I was graduating, the school ended up coming up for sale. And so at, I was 18 at the time, didn't really have anything in the way of business experience, but was just super passionate about it. So I ended up raising some money and bought the college that I had been attending. Um, Are you serious? Yeah, it was, it, it, it was awesome and, you know, naive to a pretty extraordinary extent. <laughs> you bought a college? Yeah, I mean, to this day, I don't understand why anybody gave me money back then, uh, <laughs> you know, 18 years old, like no relevant business experience, just a lot of excitement. And somehow, you know, people were willing to. <laughs> give Bro, that's like the ultimate rage against the machine moment. Like as a teenager, you're like, you know what? I'm going to just buy this place. Screw all of you guys. That's amazing. Yeah, it was, it was quite an adventure, but, um, but yeah, so I, I ended up taking over running that college at 18 and you know, I didn't, I didn't know anything that would have been relevant to be able to run an organization, particularly something like of that complexity and size. Um, and so I made up for my lack of skill with just sheer hours put in. And for the first like three years, I worked you know, probably an average of like 20 hours a day, um, barely went home. I would like nap in my office and then get back to work. Wow. Uh, and, you know, it like, it worked in the sense that I was able to learn enough to make the business successful, but it also burned me out. And so by the time I was 21, 
I got diagnosed with stage three adrenal failure. I was like in just pure burnout, uh, having a really hard time focusing. I was feeling depressed, which then made me very confused because I was like, super passionate about what I was doing in life. And at the same time, too tired and depressed to actually want to get up and do anything. Um, and so I started on, you know, kind of my own healing journey, trying to figure out how to get my cognitive function back, how to feel better about life, how to, you know, function, right. And not be just in utter exhaustion all the time. Um, and I tried all kinds of things, you know, and luckily I was already in the medicine world. So I had access to a lot that, you know, many people didn't. And there was a number of things that helped, but the IV treatment that you mentioned was really what kind of made the big pivot. Um, mm -hmm. I introduced to this research physician down in Mexico who had developed an IV therapy originally for healing cognitive damage due to severe drug abuse. Interesting. Uh, but when I went and met with him, he's like, you know, hey, the, the kinds of stress and lack of sleep that you've dealt with actually create very similar types of cognitive breakdown as if you had been a heroin addict. So I think that the same therapy will help. Um, so I went and, you know, signed up and I did three days of this IV therapy for like eight or nine hours a day. Um, and it completely changed my world and like not in subtle ways, the way that, you know, many natural therapies do like in the course of three days, not only did my cognitive function come back online, but it came online at levels that I hadn't experienced before. And like my ability to focus and stay on the point, my capacity for discernment, all kinds of things just really materially changed. The Does that treatment get you back up to baseline or increase, are you saying it even like increased in a sense, your, your uh, uh, cognitive ability beyond what it would be just at a normal, healthy level? It actually increased beyond healthy level. Like, it, I mean, it, it definitely brought back to baseline, but in a few key ways, there was notable improvements that I hadn't experienced previous to that. Wow. Um, and it was, it was just remarkable, like how, how significant it was across so many different domains, right? Like cognitive function came back, but it wasn't just that, like the, the exhaustion and the depression almost instantly went away and it was replaced with the sense of like motivation and like drive to do more. And then the piece that really stood out to me the most was that my sense of empathy went up in this like really palpable kind of way where all of a sudden I couldn't think about what I wanted to do in the world without just automatically being aware of the implications of those actions on the people and the environment around me. And so as I was sitting there kind of reflecting on the experience I'd just gone through, I had this sort of light bulb moment and I was like, if there was a way for us to do this kind of thing at scale, this could really change the game. Right. And the, the idea was, could we dramatically improve people's intelligence? Yeah, at the same time, could we make them more motivated, more competent? And could we, you know, increase their empathy and compassion so that they had an intrinsic motivator to want to use this increased intelligence and capacity, not only for personal gain, but to actually serve the bigger picture, right? To be helpful to their community, their country, and ultimately the world at large. And I was like, if this was possible, then this could be really meaningful, not just as a business, but actually as a way of being able to solve many of the global issues. Um, and it paired with a lot of work that I was doing at the time where I was starting to study existential risk and becoming increasingly aware of the problems facing humanity and you know, the sort of scope that was behind them. 
And you know, with that, there was the realization that there wasn't the ability to change the direction of humanity by addressing individual issues, no matter how big the issues were that were taken on, that ultimately what needed to occur was to change the thinking by which society makes decisions. And so that meant increasing intelligence and increasing consciousness. Right? And so mm. there was both personal experience and then this sort of, and I don't really know what to refer to it as, but like, you know, this thought process around how do we create the most impact globally? And that was really, you know, the idea that came. Um, originally, I tried to partner with that doctor and I was going to open up clinics all across the world doing this type of IV B therapy. It's going to build a for-profit arm that would fund a non-profit arm so that everyone would have access. Um, and unfortunately, like three weeks into he and I starting to work together on that, he became ill and passed away. Oh, and wow. With him passing away, most of his research was lost. Um, so, you know, there I was like, so I was 21 at the time and I had this, you know, vision for how to do something really beautiful and really impactful, but I no longer had a path forward in which to do it. Yeah. And now, now can I, can I ask a quick question before we, I want to keep going for sure, yeah, go for it. but I'm curious, especially since his research was lost, you may not know, but do you have an idea of what the connection was with that treatment in particular and the effects that you were getting? Like, do you have an, a a hypothesis of why it did give you, you know, such a boost in mental clarity, the emotional part of the depression lifting. Uh, do you have any uh, kind of hypothesis on that? Yeah. I mean, to a decent extent, I don't, I don't know definitively everything that was in the IV. Um, you know, there, I kind of hypothesized on it and talked with different you know, physicians who were working in similar domains. But one thing that I know for sure was in it is a molecule called NAD. Uh, which is a derivative of vitamin B3. And it's the primary energy source for cells. Mm. Um, and so increasing NAD levels essentially makes everything work better, right? Because you're improving health at the cellular level. Cells are able to produce more energy. They're able to re reproduce more effectively. Um, and it's in more recent research has been shown to have, you know, very specific cognitive benefits as well. Um, but that was if not the primary, one of the primary ingredients that was in it. Gotcha. Uh, and so I think that's where a lot of the benefit came from. And I've done just straight NAD IV since then, and they're awesome, but they're not the same level of effect. Something, something else is in that cocktail. Yeah, there was definitely some other things going on. Uh, like all great things, you don't get the, the full revelation of the mystery. It died with the man. It's tragic on a few different levels. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it was really sad. His, his work was extraordinary. Um, and, you know, I wish it would have had the opportunity to continue more. Um, and, you know, to, to some extent, we've been able to take what he was doing and you know, learn from it and advance it in different ways. Um, yeah. Some of what we're doing isn't quite as effective. Some of what we're doing is more effective in just slightly different domains. Um, and I think a lot of taken his research and ran with it in various areas as well because it really was you know quite quite profound um, cool all right continue where did where did it go after that where 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 did the your, your interest or your 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 entrepreneurship go after that moment yeah i mean so with that i was i was still running the college for a number of years um and you know during that time i had this vision that i wanted to bring to life but i didn't know how so i started interviewing all kinds of 
you know, chemists and neuroscientists and just, you know, everyone with relevant background to see if somebody could help develop a therapy or a formula that would accomplish this goal. Um, and it turned out that it was insanely hard. Um, and, you know, I told a bunch of researchers this vision, they're like, it's beautiful and it's not possible. Mm -hmm. like, the only way to do this is to get into highly customized medicine, very expensive, which then didn't meet the desire that I had to make something scalable where it was accessible to everybody. So the idea ended up on the back burner for a number of years. Um, and it wasn't until, I guess, about six years ago now, I was able to convince my brother to partner with me um, and help make the scientific side of this a reality. And so what, tri what triggered that? What, what brought it back into the like forefront of your brain and let's actually do something about it? Um, an acid journey. At did you say Burning Man? Yeah. So yes. I was at Burning Man 2014 and uh, Burning Man usually falls over my birthday. And so it's a, it's always sort of a time where I do deep reflection, both sure. you know, the event itself tends to bring that on. And then like, it's just a part of a process that I do every year. And so for this particular year, I, um, I took a bunch of acid and I wandered out into the deep desert by myself to just contemplate life and what was next. Um, and as I was out there, what just kept coming through really powerfully was this vision that I had had years before and the recognition that the impact of it was too great to be able to be left on the table. Like it had mm. to be brought into reality. Um, and Beautiful. You're the second podcast guest this week out of all uh, over hundred interviews that has brought up Burning Man. Nice. Yeah. So, and, and I was just reading, uh, stealing fire by, uh, Stephen Kotler yep. and he was, that was a big section of the book was talking about its impact and what's going on there. So it's top of mind for me. It's just interesting that we're having this conversation. So please continue. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so the vision sort of re arose and then on the drive home from Burning Man, I started sharing with my brother about it. Um, and, it, I told him what I was wanting to work on before, but I don't think he fully understood the scope of it. And like that, it wasn't just the idea of building a supplement company. It was the idea of doing something that could actually, you know, transform the way that society works. Um, and so as he got it, he was like, okay, I'm in. Um, and he, you know, my brother's background is in complex system science and he spent mm. his whole life running think tanks focused on solving for existential risk. Um, so working with governments and NGOs and working to redesign systems of governance and economics and decision-making and et cetera. Wow. Um, and so when he agreed to partner with me, it, it brought this real novel capacity forward where what it allowed us to do was take complex system science and apply it to the study of human physiology. And, you know, what that meant was it allowed for us to understand physiological systems at a level of depth and nuance that essentially just wasn't being done. And to not only understand particular aspects of a system where like, you know, most of research that's done in medicine is done on fairly narrow areas. It's like, oh, you know, we know that this particular biomarker, if increased, will do X, or if decreased, we'll do this other thing. Mm. But it's at this sort of very narrow orientation. And, you know, when you look at physiology, it's a very interconnected set of systems. You move one biomarker up and it has a cascading effect across any number of other things. And if you don't know how to take that into account, you end up generally not being able to create as good of solutions and you inadvertently often create harm where you're just not paying attention to those areas. 
And so, you know, what we were able to do was start to map out the capacity to understand systems and all of the different ways in which they interplay and interwork with each other. And then to start looking at doing formula design to, in, to improve an entire system as opposed to, you know, a few key variables. Um, so we end up spending almost two years in just pure R&D, first sort of developing and building out the scientific model. And then once we had that well enough architected, diving into the study specifically around cognitive function and how we could make something that would meet those initial goals, right? Dramatic increases in intelligence, increases in motivation, and increases in things like empathy and compassion. Um, and after about two years, we were able to pull off the first formula where we felt like we had taken it far enough that it was ready to be brought to the world. Um, wow. What started to emerge? Yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm tracking with you. Do you bring his systems thinking approach into physiology? And it's not typically how, you know, maybe a filter or a lens that people are looking at physiology through. What were the things that started to emerge that you saw because of that? Um, God, <laughs> so much, right? So maybe specific to this, this may be specific to this, this first pursuit that you guys had, which is around the cognitive function, where right. the, was there connections being made that kind of rose up and you're like, whoa, these all play together. That's what we need to go down that rabbit trail or something like that. Yeah. I mean, we got to see quite a lot, both in terms of like things that were going to be effective that weren't necessarily otherwise known, but also learning from some of the challenges associated with a more reductionist approach to science that had already been applied to this domain. Right. So like we were not the first into cognitive function by any stretch, right? There was already a bunch of people doing work in this space, both in the natural and the pharmaceutical arena. Um, and, you know, the pharmaceutical side was definitely the more known and popularized side. And, you know, we got to see some of the inherent challenges that showed up within the way that science was being done there and then learn from that to be able to, you know, apply this more complex approach. Like, you know, as an example, um, you know, Adderall is designed for ADHD, but it, it's extremely commonly taken as a cognitive booster. Right. right. You've got almost a third of the U.S. college population that takes it on a regular basis now. And when you look at the way that Adderall works, like it's essentially ramping up large amounts of in-chain dopamine. And as a result, you're getting way better focus and attention span. Um, but when you take you know, a particular neurotransmitter like that, and you elevate it disproportionately to everything else, you end up having a series of unintended consequences. So with something like Adderall or, you know, many types of psychostimulants, what you end up seeing is there's this dramatic increase in focus and attention, but it also depresses the parts of the brain that are responsible for things like discernment and critical thinking. Hmm. And it specifically depresses the parts of the brain responsible for empathy. So what you end up with is people who are incredibly focused and driven, but have reduced sense-making capacity and reduced care for the level of impact that their actions have, which is almost by definition sociopathy, right? Yeah. Um, right? The desire, the desire and the ability to do something significantly without much care for the impact that it has on others. Um, and this is something that we're doing chemically at scale to millions and millions of people. And so- That's scary. It's scary when you put it that way. 
it is, and it's not something that I think people focus on enough, but you know, there really are significant harms and downsides associated with a lot of how we do pharmacology in the world and particularly in this country. Um, and so, you know, in seeing things like that, it, it helped inform a better approach, right? The ability to support increased focus and attention span, because those are critical, but to do so in a way where we were also creating the relevant increases and, in, you know, all the different neurotransmitters that were relevant for not just that, but for you know, things like discernment, for visual reasoning, for problem solving skills, et cetera. Yeah. And, specifically to also be able to stimulate more compassion, more empathy, more care, um, so that we're creating more of a holistic person, right? Not just increased intelligence, but increased intelligence compared, paired with increased emotional intelligence. Um, and so, you know, that was, that was really kind of the goal and was informed both through our research into what could work, but also informed by what was currently happening that had you know, notable harm that was already existing in the world. Yeah. So then what did it look like for you guys to actually develop your solution or maybe iterations of solutions for the, for that aim? It was a fairly, you know, lengthy and complex process. Um, I mean, it started off with just, well, initially looking at what were all the things that we were trying to impact? Right. So what were the different types of cognitive function we were trying to impact? Uh, what were you know, the different pathways that were going to be associated with things like increasing motivation? And then kind of taking that back a notch and looking at what are the mechanisms of action that actually cause that to occur? And then from there, diving deeply into the research that had been done on you know, all kinds of various compounds to see which ones had already been well studied for being able to impact those particular mechanisms of action. Right. And that gives us sort of like a pool of initial ingredients that we might work with. And then from there, we start to pare it down, um, you know, taking out things that have any safety concerns, taking out things that have regulatory risks, and then starting to dive deeply into the study of the synergies between the ingredients. Right. And so a lot of times what you'll see with products is people will formulate and they'll find, you know, studies on four different ingredients that all show a lot of promise. And then they just put those ingredients into a capsule, not necessarily factoring how they're going to work together. But a lot of times yeah. where like different ingredients will compete for the same absorption pathway. So if you happen to take both simultaneously, you just don't get absorption or you get you know, very reduced absorption, or you have certain things where you know, one ingredient will increase the efficacy of another one. Right. And so we do this kind of deep analysis, looking at all the synergies, you know, continually pare things down until we have the formula that makes sense, look at it you know, through the sort of scientific model. And as long as it is good, then we take it into testing. And we, we did you know, many iterations of testing on, well, initially friends and family and then progressively larger audiences. Um, friends and I mean, family are the best, best, best versions of mice, right? <laughs> absolutely. Let me know, yeah. say, hey, I just made this in the, in the garage. Let me, let me know how, how you do. Did yeah. you guys have to raise a bunch of capital to go through all this R&D and experimentation or was this self-funded or, or how did that work? We didn't raise any capital in the very beginning. Um, I mean, most of it was just an immense amount of hours being put in. Um, and, you know, that was something that he and I did. We had a couple people that we hired on a contract basis and, you know, I had funded it from other ventures that I had. 
but it wasn't like the early days didn't actually take a lot of money. Uh, it was more a lot of effort. Um, now, what I'm picturing might not be reality, but I'm picturing uh, Breaking Bad, and I'm picturing you in whitey tidies with an apron on and a and a and a face mask in your garage, <laughs> playing with chemicals, and people thinking you were building a meth lab. Now, is any of that close to what was what was happening? Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, mean, I actually recently I was going through some old photos and I came across some pictures from when we were first starting the business, and you know, it's like me and my brother in the living room on a desk with like all of these different powders around and like, <laughs> like powder caked on my face that, you know, from not being careful enough. And, um, those, those, I mean, burger, those Schmeckenberger brothers down there are creating some kind of meth lab. I don't trust them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it was pretty funny. Cause like in, in the really early days, like I just hadn't thought about how, much dust would kick up when you would you know, pour an ingredient from one container into another. And yeah. so I was like the first few days, like I wasn't wearing a mask. So I just <laughs> inadvertently snorted all kinds of things that I didn't <laughs> and had all, you know, bunches of weird experiences with that. Where like sometimes <laughs> I just felt like I was, you know, on fire and everything was amazing. There were other times I was like completely anxious and, and then I was like, okay, we'll start wearing a mask. Like <laughs> creating your own burning man experience at home on accident. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it started off pretty unrefined um, over time. You know, it became a much more thoughtful, more refined process, got a lot more people involved. Um, but initially it was just, you know, us being passionate about the topic matter, about being able to do something good and working on an extremely limited budget. Yeah. So when did you know, or when did you start to introduce this to, to a paying customer for the first time? It was the end of 2016 was when we brought the product to market. Um, so we at that point already done several months of testing and iteration and we'd gotten to a place where what we had developed was, you know, was really quite good. And the feedback was just consistently that it was dramatically improving people's quality of life. So we brought the product out um, and you know, it started to do well almost instantly um, and particularly within the audience that we started going after, which was a very educated audience, right? The, the nature of our products is quite different than what other people are doing. They're much more complex. They're as a result, you know, more expensive, but also highly efficacious, but, you know, between the complexity and the price, like we largely went after sort of like the biohacking audience and actually a lot of the neuroscience audience, um, was sort of our first early adopters. So instead of going to the GNC crowd, you're going to more of the people who are really thinking about this and experimenting with things and would have an appreciation for this. Right. Yep. Gotcha. And their feedback was pretty, pretty quickly and, and consistently. This actually works. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we, we were really fortunate where like the thing that we were doing scientifically was quite novel and it, it brought a lot of attention. Um, not necessarily like public PR attention, but it brought a lot of attention from the research world. And, you know, it allowed us to quickly start getting a bunch of scientific advisors to sign on from really prominent universities and you know, from prominent labs. And that started to create a little bit of a buzz, which, you know, then gave us sort of the initial audience. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the feedback was just extraordinary. People were having, you know, a lot of experiences not dissimilar from what I had experienced in Mexico, not, not quite to the same level. Cause you can't, 
you can't do the same degree of efficacy through the GI tract that you can intravenously. Okay. There's like that molecule that I was saying that I was getting intravenously in AD. You can't actually take that orally. It'll completely break down in stomach acid. Gotcha. You can either take precursors where your body will produce more of it, or you can take it intravenously. But there are, you know, there are a lot of limitations when you're doing something for taking oral, oral. consumption. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what was that first year of business like for you guys? Um, off to the races, a shit show. What, what was it? Both? Yeah. I mean, sort of all of the above. Um, so, I mean, it was, you know, in the early days, it was myself and my brother and then uh, another friend named Jordan, who was a very successful tech entrepreneur um, who came together. And, you know, we all had certain relevant experience, but none of us really knew what we were doing in this particular domain. Um, and so, you know, we had some really great successes. We also made all kinds of mistakes. Uh, I think, you know, the classic thing that we did that most entrepreneurs do is we tried to do way too much too quickly um, and realized over time that we had to pare it down and focus on like what our primary competencies and objectives were. But, you know, we came in not just to start a business, but to change the world. And so, you know, the three of us all being fairly ambitious in that, you know, it very quickly went from, you know, a supplement to starting to work on advancing research for medicine as a whole. We started looking at, you know, launching a education and publishing arm of the business to bring better content out to the world. Um, I mean, all really extraordinary things, but just- yeah over leveraged we're way too much for a first year startup um, so you know we we definitely had some growing pains through that process um how did you guys get back on track um i mean partly just a little bit of experience and partly running out of money um right we after we had the product solidified and we started bringing it to market we did raise our first round of capital um, and you know, with that, we started trying to do a whole lot of things and we burned through the cash faster than we probably should have. Um, and I think that was a little bit of a wake up call where it was like, oh, okay, if we're going to be successful, then we need to focus on a limited number of things that we can actually deliver on fully. Yeah. And, you know, we can't be trying to start effectively six businesses in one, like we need to focus on the core and then expand over time based on successes. So kind of running up against that wall where we had already burned through most of the capital raised in that first round, I think was a very informative experience for us. Sure. Uh, and it was like, okay, let's, let's get back to our core. Um, and so what remained out of those, out of those variety of focuses, what remained as the, the new focus that if we're eliminating some, what, what, what remained in that? I mean, to some extent there are elements of everything we were starting that still exist, but predominantly we decided to really focus on the product side of the business Got and you know, continue to invest as much as we could into research and into quality. And so, you know, continually iterating the product that we already had in market to make it progressively better. And then over time, starting to take that scientific model and apply it to other domains of health to be able to have significant impact, not just in cognition, but in any number of areas. Um, gotcha. And then you know, like where we were doing a lot of educational work, we continue to do that, but we then started to focus it mostly on medicine, whereas it, we do still talk about sort of future of civilization and how to solve for existential risk, but as a less intense area of focus. Um, 
and you know, kind of pulled the education piece predominantly into how to improve individual quality of life and health. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to do something I don't typically do. Normally, we're staying a little bit more on the business side and on the on the story of growing and scaling the company, but I feel like we have a unique opportunity here with you to be speaking to so many people. One, it's a, it's a human issue, but also people who are probably in an in a seat in their business as the founder, in a mode of grind and go hard that I just, man, I'd be remiss if I didn't spend, you know, a good bit of this conversation, just letting you educate us as the audience, uh, as well as the things that you have available that could help us. Right. So let's start with the, the education side. Like when you are talking to business owners or people that are stressed out and maxed out, what are you hoping for them to learn? What are you hoping that they could change their mind about or with new information, things might be different for them? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I think there's, there's probably two primary things that come to mind with that. Uh, the first is surround yourself with exceptional people who are good at everything that you suck at. Yeah. Uh, and that's, it's one of the areas where I've been very fortunate and had the most success. It was like early on in my career, I got fairly clear on what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. And initially my mode, like I wanted to try to get good at all the things I wasn't good at. And I put a mm. lot of energy and investment into that and it barely moved the needle. Um, and when I kind of shifted out of that and started finding people who not only were good at, but enjoyed the things that I didn't like and were able to bring them into the team, everything just started getting dramatically easier, better, uh, more cohesive. And so like for me, I'm, I tend to err much more on the creative side. Sure. Um, I can come up with a vision for a business. I can express it in a way that is compelling for people. Um, I can kind of rally the troops, but you know, if I've got to sit there and run accounting, not only am I likely going to mess it up, but I'm going to be miserable. Um, right. And so it's like learning these different pieces and then bringing in the right talent. Huge. Um, yeah. And, you know, like that looks different ways depending on the stage of the business. If, you know, if it's a little bit bigger business or if you raise money, that's a bit easier because you can just hire the right people. If not, it sometimes looks like negotiating partnerships or bringing somebody in for a project basis, but, but having the right kinds of talent and, you know, specifically offsetting areas of individual weakness as the CEO, super key. Um, and then I think the other one that I've learned sort of painfully over the years is the importance of doing less. Hmm. Uh, you know, I think our society kind of pushes the idea that you're always supposed to be doing more and that you know, the way that you're successful is by maximizing hustle. And you, know, you see a lot of people sort of tout the fact that they work 80 and 100 hour weeks. Um, and in almost all circumstances, I found that that's entirely backwards. There are you know, these sort of unique creatures that function really well at hundred hours a week, but it's not the vast majority of people. And sure. most of the time you start to get diminishing returns where, you know, the exhaustion and the overwhelm makes it to where the work that you're actually doing is dramatically less effective, less clear, less useful and scaling back to actually focus on rest and exercise and just happiness and personal care allows you to 
do work with such a higher degree of quality. Yeah. And you enjoy it in a way where you're actually motivated, which causes you to, you know, push better results. Would. Yeah. Yeah. Are you familiar with, um, well, the book is called the power of full engagement. And then it's, it's Tony Schwartz and Jim Lair. And then one of them started a company called the energy project. Another one started something different. I think Johnson and Johnson bought like for all of their kind of umbrella companies, but they did a lot of, you know, really good basic research, but just good research around the idea of energy management, not time management. Yeah. That we're all focusing on time management and what they saw move the needle was energy management. Like if we can better balance the equation of energy, you're expending energy physically, emotionally, and mentally, how are you recovering that energy that you could get more work done in less time and be in a, what they call a performance state. Like the, most of us go between performance and survival back and forth in a day. And they want us to learn to go from performance to recovery. Yeah. And like an, like an athlete, you're on and then you're off and you give yourself what you need to recover and you're on and then you're off. Even in the middle of the day, you can do versions of that. They call it rapid recovery, right? Uh, but that, like, that's something that we've in integrated that research and teach a lot of our clients as well as our own team. And so that's why I'm so curious for you know, your expertise to just add to the conversation, right? that people are starting to wake up for the first time. Like, Hey, I think prolonged stress is not actually good. You know, like acute stress is fine. Our body seems to be able to handle acute stress, situational stress pretty well, but having that be a normal, you know, the idea of diminishing returns, the, the, the clearest example I saw was I just noticed a difference in an interview with Elon Musk, like three, four or five years ago and one recently. And like four or five years ago, it was like a bragging point to him that he was sleeping on the factory floor and that he was getting like three to four hours of sleep a night. And everyone just assumed he's one of those creatures like, Oh, he's just one of those machines. And I heard him in an interview this year and they asked him how much you sleep in a night. And he said eight to nine hours. And they're like, Whoa, that's big difference from, you know, these interviews we heard. And he said, and he said, you know, and his kind of, uh, in his left brain kind of high, you know, analytical person, he just goes, well, I ran the numbers and I realized it was suboptimal for me to be sleeping that little. And so, uh, I changed, I changed it. You know, he's like, I wasn't making as good of decisions. And basically he realized he fell into that fallacy of like more work would equal better work and backed it up to get his body, the recovery it needed so that he could make really good, fresh decisions the next day. And, and that kind of thing. So Anything you would add to that conversation that would just be us upgrading our awareness and even thinking around our energy management or how to deal with the stress and the pressure of really pushing to build a dream or to build a business? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things is just continually bringing your attention back to it because it's such a hard lesson to learn. You know, like Elon Musk already had a lot of success in business before three or four years ago when he was saying that. Right. And, you know, and he, he even fell into that. Right. And then over time sort of changed it. And, you know, I had heard some of this stuff a long time ago and didn't pay attention. Cause I was like, no, I just need to get this next project out and then I can rest. Right? Yes. And it's, it's such a hard thing to get. And especially like, I think when people are in the earlier part of their entrepreneurial phase, like there tends to be this orientation of like, oh, that rule doesn't apply to me. Right? Like I get it for everybody else, but like, I've still got the energy. I'm so passionate. Like I can just push through. And it's really easy to sort of unintentionally lie to ourselves about this, but inevitably it never actually works, yeah. um, especially long-term. And, you know, a lot of it also comes down to 
understanding how much particular projects and priorities are going to actually move the needle, right? We have this tendency oftentimes of kind of making everything similar. And it's like, you know, I've got just as much attention on making sure I respond to this email as I do on, you know, setting up for this big investor pitch. And they're just not equal. Yeah. There are certain meetings or projects that if you do a great job at that, you can take the rest of the week off and it doesn't matter, right? Because it made such a difference. And then there's all these other projects where no matter how many of them you do, nothing's going to really change. Maybe you'll feel a little bit less pressure because you don't have 4,000 emails in your inbox anymore, but ultimately it's not going to actually change the nature of the business. It's not going to move the project forward in some huge and revolutionary way where these other things are. And so it's like, you know, allow yourself to rest, to be taken care of, to you know, get the support that's necessary and then show up fully for the really big projects. And it's kind of like, you know, like a cheetah, right? They sleep 20 hours a day. They're only awake like four, but when they are, they're freaking on, right? And they yeah. run 60 plus miles an hour. If you're going to perform at that level, you have to have a lot more reserves. And that means, you know, sleep, exercise, diet, and social quality connection are sort of like the key factors and is that where you would start is that where you would start if someone's listening and they're like man i realize i need to you know i need i'd like to increase my focus i'd like to increase my energy my compassion the things that you've talked about is that where you'd start before even looking at supplements and things would it be like hey man like get adequate sleep exercise eat good food have good connections with people around you is that like the basic blocks Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so supplements by the very like nature of the word are supposed to be supplemental, right? right. They're not designed to offset replacement therapy or something, quality health and self-care. Yeah. They're designed to enhance an already functioning system. Now you can use them to offset damage, but that's not the primary or most effective thing. So yeah, I mean, you know, you've got those four basics of you know, exercise, sleep, diet, and connection. Of those, if focusing on all that is overwhelming, focus on exercise Uh, because exercise will make you sleep better. Um, If you're exercising enough, it tends to change what your cravings are and will often orient towards healthier things. Um, And you're just in a clear mental state, which means you're going to get more done and actually have more time for social connection. So of all of them, if you don't have the bandwidth to really focus on it all, prioritize exercise ideally focus on all of them Um, and then start looking at supplementation and other kinds of biohacks to elevate beyond that. Now there is a caveat to that where like part of what we tried to do with designing neurohackers products was to have something so impactful that it made making the other choices easier. So Cause like if you're waking up and you're exhausted and you can't focus and you're feeling depressed, it's really hard to get up and go to the gym. Yeah. Go, you know, eat a cucumber instead of a cookie, right? Like these kinds of decisions are difficult. And so there are things biochemically where you can put yourself into a notably better state where doing those other things becomes easier, but it's critical if you're doing that, that you actually then take the steps and make the better dietary choices and sleep choices, because otherwise it ends up just giving you a period of time of increased bandwidth and then it'll stop being effective because you'll just sure. run down. Yeah. But 
have had a lot of people that will use you know, qualia to be sort of a kickstart for an overall healthier lifestyle. And as long as it's in that context, it's a really great tool. It's just not great if you continue to burn the candle at every possible end and take it and don't make any other changes, then it'll be effective for you know some number of months and it'll start to lose its efficacy because it's designed to enhance a functioning system. It's not designed to replace what sleep and diet and everything else provides. Totally makes sense. So is Qualia the the product that is that what you were mentioning? Is that the product that you guys created for for the as a supplement? Yeah. So Qualia was the name of the first product that we created. Um, and then it actually ended up being what we were more known for than Neurohacker. And so we actually pivoted where now the whole product line is called Qualia. And then there's different versions. So like Qualia Mind is our sort of flagship cognitive product. And then we've got like Qualia Life, which is our longevity product, Qualia Night, which is our sleep product. Right. So interesting. How it plays out now. All right. Well, you've got a very, so I'm a potential customer, right? I'm sitting here. I'm, 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 I'm showing restraint right now that I'm not on my other monitor already looking at your website and seeing, you know, what is the products and how much it costs. Um, you know, for me, for instance, like I was diagnosed with ADD. Don't know if I am or not. I do know that focus and, and motivation energy has always been tough for me. Didn't like Adderall. I loved it in some senses right. because of like, I mean, it wasn't, placebo effect like i was on you know but i didn't like all the side effects so for the last 10 years i haven't really been i haven't been on it and i've just been exercising regularly sleeping pretty good eating well that kind of thing but i'm still in search for something that could aid that whole thing right but the supplement market is so hard for me to navigate right. you know i don't know that's why i'm excited to even talk to you because i'm like well i can at least talk to you and i can already tell from your story you know your eth your ethical nature as well as your scientific approach and those kinds of things, right? So talk to me as, as the consumer, how could, let's say the mind one, help me? And, and why, why do we know it will help? Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, so I guess, I mean, in terms of how we know it will help, there, there's a couple different approaches on this, right? One is large amounts of subjective feedback over, you know, many thousands of people and several years at this point um, where you know, people are continually reporting huge improvements in their motivation, in their intelligence, um, you know, often you know, referencing degrees of heightened cognitive function that they haven't experienced before, or you know, maybe people who are significantly older who are starting to experience cognitive function like they did in their 20s wow. and, you know, in many years. Um, one of the areas that I really appreciate seeing in a lot of the commentary we get is some of the, the things more associated with things like empathy. Like the way that people reference it usually is that they feel more connected and more present. And you know, we'll often hear from people that they're, um, they're noticing that the quality of their social connections has become so much greater because of their ability to be engaged and be present with the people in front of them and to be present with themselves. Right? Mm. These kinds of things are really beautiful to see. Sure. Uh, but then beyond that, you know, we, we are a very scientifically inclined organization. And so we do studies wherever we possibly can. Um, we're still a young company, so we haven't done a lot of large scale clinicals because those are just take years and are very expensive. Um, but we've done quite a number of pilot studies and 
you know, been able to do, for instance, before and after cognitive testing, where we're testing specific types of brain function and comparing the results after someone's been on the product before, but also comparing it to the impact that would happen from using various kinds of psychostimulants or other types of interventions and being able to see huge increases in different parts of cognitive function. Most notably in those studies has been increases in concentration. Um, and then, you know, it depends on the product. Like we did, we did a study just a few months ago, which was actually on our longevity product, but was super, super exciting to see the results. Um, we, so with the longevity product, we're, we're working on five primary pathways that are associated with anti-aging, but we did the study on the NAD pathway, which is what we were talking about earlier, because that's a very hot topic right now in anti-aging. There's quite a bit of emerging science around it. People are becoming increasingly aware of the impact of NAD levels in the blood and how significantly that can improve overall health and look at increasing life expectancy. Um, and like I mentioned, you can't take NAD orally because it fully breaks down in the GI tract. So you have to take precursors that then cause your body to produce more. So we created a you know, particular formula of precursors as well as formulating to close the salvage pathway so that when you produce NAD, your body is actually able to utilize it all as opposed to sort of dumping it. Um, and when we did the study, we were doing before and after blood labs with people having taken the product for 30 days. And what we saw was a full 100% increase in NAD levels in the blood and a 40 and 60% increase in the two primary metabolites associated, uh, which is nicotinamide riboside, nicotinamide mononucleotide, um, which was extraordinary, right? Like wow. you that in comparison to the other leading products in the market, it was a full 2x higher results than what else is out there. Um, All right. I got a few questions. Go for it. One, I know the, the anti-aging is a new and even controversial or a multi-opinionated field right now. Mm -hmm. You have some on one end that feel like the research indicates that aging is just a disease like any other disease and we'll be able to cure it. Others that say, well, we'll never cure it, but I do think we can make significant headway in expanding the quantity and quality of life by years. Where are you currently? And I know your position may change as more research comes out or you whatever, but wh how are you currently thinking about that conversation? What do you think is possible? Um, so from the research that I've seen, I wouldn't say that curing death is an option, um, right? We are still a biological system that has certain degrees of you know, breakdown over time. I don't think that we can likely extend life expectancy forever. But I do think that there's substantial evidence to show that we can increase it dramatically. Um, is dramatically a, of, a decade? Is it 50 years longer than typical at some point in the future? Like, what is your guess? Yeah, it, it sort of depends on at what stage we're looking at. Like, in terms of what's doable right now with sort of the best of what's available, I think you're looking at about a 10 to 15 year extension on life. Really? Uh, currently? Mm-hmm. So you uh, think in our lifetime, you and I were, were, I'm guessing, similar ages before we croak. You think it'll be 10 to 15 years at least beyond what the average was for our parents' generation? I don't know whether or not it'll necessarily play out in terms of averages like that because it also has to do with adoption. Yeah, right? adoption and access and yeah. 
um, there are certain things that have gotten very broad adoption over time, which have impacted life expectancy, right? Like antibiotics being by far the most significant. Um, and, you know, with the different technologies that come out, I don't know that they'll necessarily be something that everyone will be attracted to in a similar time frame. So it won't necessarily impact average life expectancy in the near term quite as great as it will for subsets of people who orient towards these types of things. And then over time, as there's greater social acceptance, then I think it'll become you know, progressively more into the commons. Um, but yeah, I think with what's available right now, increasing 10 to 15 years is, appears to be quite doable. Um, when we look at the advances that are happening in the anti-aging space, I think that, you know, seeing that increase to between 50 and 100 years is actually a very real probability in the next couple wow. of decades. Um, with, with quality of life extended as well into those 50 or 100 years, or are you just old for an extra 50, an extra 50 years? With, well, like, with, like, with diminished cognitive, with like the cognitive decline and quality of life. Does that make sense? Like right. in, my mind, in my mind, there's the conversation of, could we technically keep you alive longer? And then the other part of the conversation is, and would you enjoy being alive longer, right? Right. No, and that's really key because, you know, like there are of course things that can extend life expectancy, but in ways where you don't necessarily want it, right? Like if you're on a life support machine, you're, you can extend life expectancy, but why, right? Like right. Yeah. the quality of life there. Um, so the goal is extend life expectancy while you have quality of life, right? Like that's a big product focus for our product is we are focused on increasing life expectancy, but we're more focused on what we refer to as increasing health span. So of mm. the number of years that you're on the planet, how many of them are you thriving? I like because, that. You know, if you're going to live to 80 normally and going to be in pretty good health up till what's called 75, if we can tack on another 10 years, but those 10 years are with a lot of suffering, it doesn't necessarily seem like the goal to go after. But if we can take you from 80 to 90 and extend the quality of life, you know, by that same decade, now it's incredibly worthwhile. Yeah. That's exactly what I was, I was hinting at. That's yeah, that's incredible. One of the things that gets really interesting to me in this domain is not just at the level of individual health, but you know, if you scale back a little bit, what becomes possible as people live longer and have the ability to learn more? Because right? the more years that we're around, we are always learning and we're learning based on information that we already had. Mm. And, you know, like when I think about what I know now, as compared to what I knew a decade ago, it's such a drastic difference. And that'll be true a decade from now. And like, you know, each time we get to add another number of years, like the level of collective understanding and intelligence has the opportunity to rise at such a profound scale. Um, that gets really interesting to me. Yeah, if you had the wisdom and the experience and you also coupled that with the energy to still do something about it. Right. Now we're on to something. Exactly. Interesting. Now on the on the on the on the mind side of the product line that you guys have, would I be correct in assuming it would be in I don't know if this is the actual term or not, but like a neurotropic? Mm -hmm. Um is that is that like a similar type of supplement like when people are talking about neurotropics? Yeah, I mean, the word nootropic basically just means a, any substance that increases one or more types of brain function without causing harm. Um, now, people use it in different ways, and sometimes they'll think that it relates to particular like classes of chemicals, um, but it really is a fairly broad term that just means 
it's going to improve brain function. Gotcha. So, so then how, how do we think about your product inside of that? How do we think about, like, what do you think is going on at the physiological level that, that your supplement is impacting in us? Well, so the, the focus of how we do product design is, like I said, we're, we're not trying to move particular biomarkers, right? We're not trying to increase dopamine or serotonin or, you know, anything specifically. The nature of how we're doing design is to improve homeostasis and to essentially increase the body's capacity for self-regulation. So we're working on improving health and function at the most fundamental levels of the system so that whatever your body needs in real time, it has the capacity to produce. So Mm. when you're in a project where you need more focus, your body's able to produce the compounds relevant for that. And when you're in a time where you're trying to do something more creative, your body can produce what's relevant for that. Um, So it's a very different approach than most everything that's out there. Almost everything is specifically designed to increase or decrease certain areas. And that's really physiologically, that's not what's happening with ours. I mean, it, it does to an extent, but the, the primary underlying goal here is improve baseline functionality so that your body is able to generate what it needs when it needs it for optimal function. Gotcha. So something more like an Adderall or something like that is going to have a very specific aim at increasing something, which is why you feel it immediately. And it heightens that sensation or whatever, whereas this is more of a, a daily, a daily supplement is what it sounds like that would increase your own body's ability to regenerate things and do maintenance and produce those at a normal level. So that it's, uh, it's more of a normal for you versus like a, almost like a high that you just got. Right. Now, one thing though, that's really interesting is that it actually does have significant near-term impact. So like, you know, on one side, you've got things like Adderall or Modafinil that people will take, which you feel very powerfully, but they can tend to have long-term downsides. And then you've got a lot of other like brain supplements that don't necessarily have downsides, but it takes weeks before you feel them and they're fairly subtle. Yes. Product, we sort of live, you know, in the middle where you actually feel it substantially as soon as you start taking it but there's not only no associated downside, we're working to improve baseline health at the same time. Cool. And so you get a very real and noticeable impact the first time that you take it and it becomes progressively better because over time you're getting a lift off of an increasingly more functional baseline system. Um, But it is, it's not a subtle experience for most people. Um, It's actually, pretty remarkable for the majority of people who take it. And from what we've seen about 85% of people start noticing the impact the first day. Um, Some people will take a few days, particularly if there's a lot of sleep deprivation, but it is something that you start to notice quite quickly. And then certain, certain aspects you notice more quickly than others. So increases in motivation and focus tend to be something that happen almost instantaneously Whereas things like improvements in memory tend to be things that start to present over the course of a few weeks more and more. Um, gotcha. Cool. Uh, man, anything else while we're on this topic before I switch gears that you, you, you'd be uh, remiss not to talk about? No, I think happy to switch gears. Okay, cool. This has been super helpful for me. 
uh, and exciting. And I'm definitely going to check out uh, your website pretty soon after this. Um, man, so on the on the business building side, as we take a look at the whole journey from from there to here, and I know the journey's not over, but we're just taking this as a subset. Um, what have emerged as maybe the most uh, unforeseen challenges? Uh, maybe you foresaw them, but what have been the biggest challenges to actually building this as a business versus just creating the supplement? Hmm. So I think for us at Neurohacker, the biggest challenge has probably been the ability to tell the story effectively. Um, you know, we're, the thing that we're doing is, is quite novel. There's not really anything else in the market that's like it, which means that people don't automatically know what we're doing, how it works, why it works. And there's a lot of education that goes with that. Um, and so like for us, our marketing is very much educational marketing and it's telling a big story that includes talking about complex system science and new approaches to health and then how that presents in the products that we're creating. Um, but that that's hard on a couple of fronts because for one, to actually express enough of the story that people get it takes a little bit of time. And most people don't have enough interest and attention span to be able to pull on. And then all, the other piece is that, you know, to tell the story effectively often requires the use of terminology that a lot of people aren't that familiar with. Um, and so we've been able to get, you know, pretty good at this point at telling the story to a highly educated audience, particularly educated in medicine. Um, but then to go into more broad audiences and be able to tell the story in a way that's exciting and attractive and that creates the right types of appeal for people, but without boring them or using terms that they're not familiar with is actually genuinely difficult. Yeah. Um, and See, what, here's what you need. All right. I'm going to solve your problem right now, James. Awesome. You need a dummy like me to come in and keep doing what I'm doing with you right now. Just get an average dummy like me who's interested by the, the topic and want some solutions just to keep pepping you with questions. Like, hey, what is this? Why, why is that working on me? You know, <laughs> why does this matter? That's what you need. And then you'll figure out what translates and, and what analogies and metaphors to use that would click with somebody like me that goes, oh, you know, the best way I heard it described is we need to pick up on the story that or the conversation that someone is already having in their brain, right? That the most effective storytelling almost completes the sentence right and so you get inside of the person's head i'm mostly joking but i am a dummy compared to people like you you get inside the conversation that someone like me an ideal customer is likely already having in their head right and i'm tired all the time shit i wonder what i'm gonna do about that i can't seem to focus should i go and grab adderall why i don't know maybe it'll work again and you, you know the conversation or i'm all i'm online and all these people claim that they can boost this and boost that i don't know should i take ashwagandha no, I don't know. Should I take uh, the root of a toad's ass? I don't know what I'm supposed to do, right? That, that's kind of where our brain goes. And then it's like, well, there's alpha brain and there's these kinds of places. Those sound too good to be true. You complete some of the, if you guys can figure out a way to pick up on the conversation already in our head and translate bare minimum, like what do you need to know that's going to click and create trust? Right. Then I'm, we're going to be on your website saying, you know, that TikTok where they slam the, the card on the table, take my money, right? <laughs> take my money, James, take my money. I don't care if it's coming from a meth lab and you're in your underwear, just send it to my house, get it here by Monday with prime shipping. All right. That's what I want. 
Right. <laughs> but it makes sense. But, that would be the hardest part is translating the scientific understanding that you guys have and the complexity of the issue as you're understanding it and distilling it down to an audience that would say, we get it. Yep. Is that what I'm hearing? I'm, I'm reflecting back to you. What I'm hearing is the biggest challenge. Is that, is that right? Yeah. No, I mean, you're totally right. That is, that is the challenge. And I think that what you're saying is actually, you know, a relevant part of the solution. Like I do find that, you know, the more times that we try to tell the story and as we tell it to different people who ask slightly different questions, like, you know, it progressively illuminates new pieces of how we need to tell the story more effectively. Um, and so, you know, these types of things absolutely help to inform, you know, how, how do we continue to refine this and make it something yeah. that, appeals to and makes sense to more and more people. Well, it's why, man, it's like the rise of the, of the celebrity scientist, you know, someone like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think has been so effective because he has made it his mission to explain the, the wonders of the cosmos in an understand, uh, in an entertaining and understandable way to the common person. Right. Right. And then I'll see people like on Rogan's podcast or something like Dr. Andrew Huberman Mm -hmm. or all these other people that you're like, Man, why are they interesting? Because they're talking to me. They're like breaking it down. They're saving me some of the jargon. I don't need to know explaining some of the jargon that makes me feel smart. You know, <laughs> like now I can tell my friends I understand what's going on when I sleep. But that that's the opportunity for you guys. You know, right. your company is to, is to bridge that gap between the scientific community and the everyday person that really needs to benefit from whatever you're learning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think we're getting progressively better at that because like, you know, with the history of the business, like we invested very, very deeply in science um, and built a lot of competencies there. We're able to attract extraordinary talent that, you know, was sort of unreasonable for the size of company that we were and like just really developed that. So we, you know, started to create products that had incredible quality and efficacy and all that. And then we were like, wait, but now we're a room full of nerds and we don't know how to speak to a general public. <laughs> right? So, so right. then formed the next evolution, which was, you know, now we need to bring people in who understand how this can be expressed to the world broadly. And you know, what is the right kinds of language and imagery and sentiment that people care about? Um, well, I think I've... pieces that does make it harder is the space that we're in um, because you know, supplements in general, a lot of the population looks at them as some form of pseudoscience. And then specifically when you get into the cognitive domain, not only do you have the pseudoscience thing, but you have the snake oil thing. Yes. Rightfully so, right? The vast majority of the products that are out there in this space don't actually do anything. Some of them are actually harmful. Um, and they just have immense amounts of marketing push behind them. That's what I'm skeptical of. I'm telling you, I, I, have, a, I have a skepticism in me a desire and a skepticism because I'm, I'm just a familiar with the idea of a placebo effect that right. I may get some boost in what I feel is an effect that it could have been sugar water for all I know, right? One thing is you should have skepticism, right? Like the world that we live in today is largely designed to trick us into believing things that we shouldn't. And so healthy skepticism is actually critical. Um, you know, I mean, the number of times that I go online and I see an ad for some cognitive product that says something to the effect of, you know, this is the pill that Warren Buffett took to make all of his money or (laughs) what Stephen Hawking's takes to be so smart. It's like, you know, those people have never even heard of the product. Um, It's just a completely made up article that's designed to look like something from CNN that has a totally different URL. It's like, it's entire marketing lies. Yes. Um, 
And so it's like, when there's so much of that that's out there, you actually have to apply skepticism. Otherwise you're just gonna be constantly getting sold on things that are not only useless, but likely harmful. Mm. Uh, and so there is this discernment piece that has to come into play. And, and you're spending 60 bucks a month on on whatever it is, which you feel for the average person, you feel that's a, I'm, I'm just making up a number, but it's like 60 bucks a month to take the supplement. You're not even sure if it's helping, right. but I'm supposed to be taking it, right? Yeah, and you you keep buying it, holding out hope that someday you're going to be Warren Buffett. But it's like, it, you know, <laughs> there was no corollary there. Um, instead so, of learning, instead of learning how to how to make money through the stock market, you're just taking this pill, thinking it's going to make you the next Warren Buffett. Right. But yeah, I mean, for us, that's always been one of the key challenges, where it's like, you know, in order for people to understand what we're doing, there's a decent amount of information that has to be transmitted. But then beyond that, there's quite a lot more that we have to transmit to be able to actually differentiate from all of the snake oil that's out there. Um, and so the combination of it means that there's, there's just quite a lot of information that needs presented in order for people to actually understand what we're doing, how it's unique and different, and the fact that it actually has real efficacy behind it as opposed to just another story. Yeah. And so, you know, you put those pieces together and that, that has been historically, I would say one of our greatest challenges and growth. Um, gotcha. Well, like I said, if you're, if you're doing a focus group with someone thinking about this and you want a dummy like me to be in the focus group, I'm there, man. I'm interested in the subject. I'll, I'll ask the questions, give you the feedback, whatever would be helpful for you. Awesome. Uh, on the, uh, maybe the last question before the lightning round, um, what, what does it take in terms of staffing and company right now to support this business? Like every industry is different. It might be three people because it's all distribution and outsourced, whatever. It could be 50 people to R and D marketing. So I'm just curious, like what, what's the size of the company right now that's supporting this effort? I think we're currently at sort of 23 or 24 full-time staff. Okay. Uh, which is a decent amount more than would probably be true for other supplement companies of our size. Right. Uh, but we insource just about everything um, for largely for quality control purposes. Um, but like, you know, most companies in this space outsource their production. A lot of them even outsource their formulation. They outsource all their fulfillment, you know, they outsource a lot of things. Um, and for us, I mean, science is our core competency, so we're never going to outsource our formulation. Um, but, you know, we even manage all of our own sourcing internally, and we do essentially all of our own content creation and advertising internally because the, the story is so unique. Um, so we've got you know, a decent sized team uh, for the size of business we are because we're trying to sort of control the variables as much as possible. And yeah people internal that have time to learn everything over duration as opposed to just constantly outsourcing it to a third-party group love it yeah. killer all right let's get into our lightning round questions then i'm gonna let you get back to your busy day question Sounds number good. one if you can ingrain one message into your entire organization what would that message be does this mean like to my to staff to yeah to the 23 people that are, that are working for you. If they had like almost a billboard, they had to walk by every day. Cause you want this message ingrained in them. What would that message be? It may or may not be the right message, but the one that comes to me is actually just 
how profoundly appreciated they are. Um, I'm continually amazed by my team um, and feel not only delighted, but lucky who I get to work with. Love it. It's great. Question number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst advice, whether given to you personally, or you just hear floating around the zeitgeist? Um, I think some of the best advice I've ever gotten in business is just keep moving forward. You know, there really isn't a, there isn't a right way to do things. Um, and even if there is, it changes constantly as business and technology changes. And so it's, it's just staying in a place of paying attention and being willing to take the next steps, even if you don't know what the step after that is. Um, totally makes sense. How about the worst advice? You know, the worst advice that I've seen isn't necessarily like specific to a thing to do or not to do. It's more about how to do it, where I see a lot of people advising on, you know, be more like Elon Musk, be more like Richard Branson and, you know, whatever the archetype is, but there's this constant idea of like, oh, if you can just emulate, you know, these particular qualities or this way of being, then you'll be more successful. And I think it really negates the uniqueness of everyone. And the fact that if you're going to be successful, you're going to be successful based on your own particular skill sets and competencies and what lights you up. And the focus really needs to be on that and not trying to be like somebody else. Love it. Well said. Question number three, what causes you the most stress or worry currently in leading your organization? Hmm. Um, you know, with Neurohacker, I actually don't have that much. I would say at the moment, probably like some of the tech wars going on between Facebook and Apple and things, because it just makes a lot of our work dramatically harder. Um, sure. But I actually don't have all that much with Neurohacker. Other businesses have been harder, but this one, we just have so much talent on board. Cool. All right. Number four, what is your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal for this company? Um, to increase intelligence and consciousness at scale for tens of millions of people or more. Love it. If there were a book that you would recommend, I'm adding this in here. If there were a book you'd recommend for someone gaining interest in that very pursuit, is there anything that's like a, a particular favorite of yours that you would pass along to somebody? Um, you know, one that I read not too long ago that was pretty exceptional was a book called Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Okay. Uh, that one was one of the more impactful books that I've read in the last probably year or two. Cool. I've definitely Going heard of Peter days. Thiel, but I haven't read that book. What's that? said, I've definitely heard of Peter Thiel, but I, I have not read that book. So I'm going to, I'm going to make a note of it to read it myself. Yeah. It's a worthwhile one. Cool. All right. Number five is our fun, creative question. Uh, maybe you've even had this experience on an acid trip at Burning Man, but we'll see. So if you could hop into a DeLorean, you get to go back to your past, but you only get to tell yourself one thing out the driver's side window of the DeLorean as you pass by, when are you going back? And what is the message that you are delivering to that younger version of yourself? Huh. Um, 
Well, without putting much thought into it, it is probably going back to give or take the beginning of my entrepreneurial phase. So 18 or so, um, and telling myself to trust myself more and try less. Mm. Beautiful. Awesome. James, thank you so much for being here, man. Thank you for, for taking the pivot of the conversation and being willing to entertain, uh, the dummies questions from me, but I think it's hopefully helped our audience too. In, in really understanding what it is you're trying to accomplish and how you guys are, are aiding in that effort. And so, uh, man, if you're listening, go check out their website. What's the actual uh, uh, link that you would tell people to go to if they want to buy, buy your product or, or find out more about you? Neurohacker.com. Perfect. Uh, so go check that out. And thank you for being here, my friend. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.